We're in our journey through Galatians, so we're going to start in verse 8 today. So let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, uh, please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Please give us your word in a way that we can understand it, in a way that the, the meaning of it goes into our hearts and not just our minds. Lord, we, we want to be able to mentally grasp what you're saying. And then, Lord God, we want to have the soft heart and the soft soil where the seed of your word can grow up into, in our heart and can take control of us and, and make us new, bring healing into our lives, God. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to wait upon you and, and allow your work to be done in our spirit. Lord, there's nothing external that can fix us. It is only an internal working of your spirit that brings healing and, and soundness and wholeness and completeness into our lives. So, Lord, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts right now through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to learn tonight uh, about Galatians chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And we're going to learn about Paul's heart for the church and why he's been writing this letter and what he personally feels about the church in Galatia. Because we've we've seen a whole lot of doctrine. We've seen his his uh, vicious almost attacks on legalism. And that's why our, our, our series title has been War on Legalism, because we've seen him just go to war. We've seen him, uh, you know, attack it from every angle that he could think of almost. He's just been coming at it from this way and from that way. And now we're going to get into his his really personal pleas and his personal um, message to the people that he knew. Because we got to remember, he knew the believers here. When he first came into Galatia, um, they were pagan worshiping Gentiles. You know, and so they knew nothing about God and they were worshiping false gods and, and all these things. And so... He shared with them about the one true God and they believed and and they came to him like children. And I I picture him like starting an orphanage and all these kids just staying with him and living with him and and him like taking care of them and teaching them everything from Genesis all the way through to, um, well, Malachi at the time. And and then maybe some of the gospel, you know, just teaching them all those things. And because they had no background in the Old Testament, none. And so he was taking them through all these things and all that time that he spent with them developed a very close intimacy with them. So he knew these people, but then God called him away. Okay. And so from this time away, he had a, um, he hears again that uh, the Judaizers had come in and had begun to change the things that he taught them and to try to bring them back into this bondage that we've looked at so intently. But I want to uh, first keep your finger here in Galatians, but turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Should be four pages to your left. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, just look at, at the beginning right there in chapter 12. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when that... You were Gentiles, carried away by these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul here, he's writing to a different group of people, but they're in a similar, similar situation in that they were Gentiles. They were these pagan, idol-worshipping, crazy-drinking Gentiles. You know, it's funny when, when uh, my friend um, Micah is, is making something and it doesn't turn out how he wants, he's always like, Gentiles. And it's, it's, a, funny, <laughs> it's a funny phrase. Uh, but it just means like, man, they had no, like they're reprobate. They had no, no knowledge of God. And so he says here that while they were Gentiles, they were carried away to these dumb idols. That all these pagan gods that they worshipped were dumb idols. Now when we hear the word dumb, our first initial thought is unintelligent. Which fits for idols, but that's actually not the word that's being uh, used here. The word dumb is unable to speak. That's the real meaning of the word dumb. And so, um, like the Dumb Friends League, you know, animals who can't talk. So if a, a parrot can talk, can he go to the Dumb Friends League if he's lost? I don't know. That's a good one to ponder. Anyway, um, so these dumb idols means they cannot talk. And where is this at in the Bible? In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is a chapter on spiritual gifts. Okay? So... Paul, in this chapter, is contrasting spiritual gifts with idols that can't talk. So how is he contrasting that? He's saying God is a God that does talk. He's a God who speaks to us. He has messages he wants to get across to you. In fact, he wants to have conversations with us. Not a dumb idol like a rock that sits there. Who has ever had a great conversation with a rock? Kurt has. Okay. All right. I bet that was an exhilarating conversation. And some people say they go up and talk to the trees. Well, the trees don't talk back. You know, that doesn't really work as far as conversation goes. So here he says, you know, idols are the opposite of our God. Idols are dumb. Idols cannot speak. And we're going to find a little bit more about this contrast. Dumb idols versus a speaking God, or dumb idols versus a living God. So, go back, go with me back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. <clears throat> I'm going to read it for, from the New Living Translation just to give us a fuller picture of it. He says, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So everyone is going to be a slave. The Gentiles were slaves. We are going to be slaves. Slavery or serving is just something that every human has to engage with. That's how the world works. Um, so you're either going to be a slave. No one's really their own master. All of us are going to serve someone. And you guys have heard that. I think there's even a popular song. It says, I don't, I don't know what it says, but I've heard people reference that, and I don't know quite what it is. Chris knows because he's laughing right now. All right, anyway, then, okay, so everyone's going to be a slave. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from Exodus chapter 5, because there's a story in the Bible that kind of goes along with this. So in Exodus 5, it says, verses 1 and 2, after this, Presentation to the Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went down and spoke to Pharaoh. And they told him, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, that they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Verse 2. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh? And who is the Lord? And why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. See, at this time, Israel were slaves as well. And so it's a real good picture for us. And their master, Pharaoh, had no interest in giving them freedom. No interest in giving them freedom. Just like the idols of the Gentiles in Galatia. The idols they served, which are not even idols, we've read, they weren't even gods. They had no interest in giving or bringing freedom to the Galatians. And so Paul's reminding them of that. He says, when you didn't know God, you served those things which are not gods. So, and this guy Pharaoh, back in Exodus, he wasn't a god either, even though he thought he was. We look at mythology, we look at uh, all the study over there in, in Egypt, and they've found that the Egyptians believed Pharaoh was God. They believed he was deity and that he lived forever. And that's why they built all these pyramids the way that they did. Um, So he thought he was a God, but he really wasn't. But God, the real God, heard the cries of the Israelites, didn't he? He not only heard their cries, he saw their slavery. It says that he looked upon them and he, he saw the pain that they were in and he had compassion on them. So again, Dumb idols, or Pharaoh, or something that doesn't care about bringing you freedom, versus a speaking God, a living God, and a God who wants to bring freedom. This is the contrast that we have here. And a God who not only wants to bring freedom, but has the power and the, the muscles to bring that freedom. The power, the... the um, energy, the, the power... I, I, keep saying that same word, but uh, the, the will and the, di- the desire to bring that freedom. So these false gods actually hate you, yet we serve them without worry before. And the Galatians, they serve these gods. It says in, in here in verse 8, they serve these gods. And it was without worry. They didn't care. They, they thought that everything was fine. Just like we look at the world today, and they are full on all about serving money and popularity and sex and fame and whatever else is their God, they have no problem serving that even though that God actually hates them and is going to bring about their destruction. If you serve money your whole life and you die Bill Gates and you're rich, what happens if you don't know Jesus? You go to hell. You lose it all. You lose everything. So that God that bought you a false sense of security is you can look at it as a God that hates you. Yet people are serving these gods. Does that bring a different mindset when we when we're talking to people about their life and we see that they're they're a slave of money, let's say money or, or they're a slave of popularity or whatever they're a slave of. They're a slave of something. And we can bring that and say, you know, that money hates you and they're like whoa money is an object you can't hate well then why are you serving it then if it doesn't even have a brain why is it your god 
Why don't we serve a real God? Okay, so just like we were so blind in our condition, we didn't even see our Savior come. Just like they didn't see Moses come. You know, when Moses came, were they real excited to see Moses back in Exodus? No, they, they weren't all about it. They're like, who are you? It, was, it didn't happen like that. And when, the same with us. When Jesus came, the world didn't recognize it. John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And so the application is, recognize your Savior. And Paul's worry for the church, here it's beginning right here, Paul's worry for the church is that they wouldn't recognize their great Savior who came to set them free. You know, they wouldn't even recognize him. Um, and so what do we need to be, what do you need to be set free from tonight? Is there anything that's going to set you free except Jesus? And if you think about those people at your work and your neighbors and, and all those people that we're going to be reaching out to here at the Denver campus and through you guys, we have connection to thousands of people. You know, you guys go to work, you guys have friends, you guys have family. And all these connections, when we go out, are we going to be recognizing and informing people that the Savior is there to set them free? Um, so Romans 6.22 says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So it doesn't say you get to get out of the slavery. No, we're still slaves. We just become slaves instead of a dead, dumb idol, a rock or a tree or whatever money, fame, popularity and idea any of those things, we become slaves of God. And what does that do? We get a fruit that happens in our life. So the fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life. This great uh, quote from Martin Luther says, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say, Christ is a savior. It is quite another thing to say, he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. I love that. So, in Psalm 115, go ahead and keep your finger here in Galatians and turn back to Psalm 115. 115. Verses 4 through 8. Actually, we'll start in 3 says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Well, that's really helpful. You have a God that can't speak, can't 
breathe, can't talk, can't move, can't help, can't lift, can't change you, can't do anything for you. And it says they are like them. So they become like them when they, when they worship them. But we need a God to help us. A God who does whatever he pleases. Now that's scary because he can do whatever he pleases. But what is he pleased to do? What is our God pleased to do? He goes around healing things and restoring things and loving people and all this crazy stuff. That's what our God pleases to do. Does he delight in sending people down to hell? No, he, he can't. He doesn't delight in doing that. But he, ha- he will if he has to. But our God delights in bringing life into our lives, bringing life into people's lives. So, the last part we're going to, the verse, last verse we're going to look at when talking about these false gods is 1 Corinthians 10.20. And he says, quickly, he says, rather the things that the, which the Gentiles sacrifice. So the Gentiles, what the Galatians were before and what the Corinthians were before, these people who knew not God or didn't know God at all, but yet they still sacrifice. Why? Because they're slaves and a master requires sacrifice. And so he says here, the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So, serving these not gods and these idols is actually serving demons. They thought they were on the right side But in fact, they were serving the evil servants of Satan. The the Gentiles didn't know any... They thought they were serving rocks and and trees and, and idols made of stone and silver and gold. But in reality, they were serving demons. So, does a demon want to help you? If I asked that to our kids in the back, what do you think they would say? What are demons here to do? Ah! They, 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 they'd be scared. They, they're like, no, demons are here to hurt us and kill us and destroy our lives. Which is absolutely true. Demons hate you. So why would we want to serve a demon? Of course, you guys are here tonight. Your desire is to serve the Lord. But we have interaction with many people who are unknowingly serving demons by their idolatry and they are going to be it's like they're they're sleeping with the enemy it's like they have this connection that's deep with something that's going to kill them and it's just sad it's just really sad so back in galatians chapter four we're going to speed up i promise we're not going to do one verse like last week verse nine he says but now after you have known god or rather, are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So why would you want to flow from a relationship with God back to performance again, is what he's saying. To know God and be known by God, what is that describing? Relationship. It's describing relationship. And so he's saying, you've been in relationship with God. When I first met you, when I first gathered you together and introduced you to this guy Jesus and how you could be right with God and you could know God, I introduced you. You knew him and he knew you. You guys had communion. You guys had relationship. 
but yet you want to flow back into this bondage. And so Paul, he's leaving the, he's already laid out all the doctrine. He's already laid out all the reasons why legalism is wrong and this idea of trying to please God by our works. And he's, he's been driving us towards relationship, and now he's starting to plead with his heart. And he says, why? When you knew him, would you want to go back to weak and beggarly elements? That means performance to the law. Have you ever noticed that every time our performance to the law is mentioned in the Bible, it's used with terms like weak and beggarly and worthless? That's how he views our efforts to keep the law. Because it's true. No one can keep the law out of their efforts. And so, as um, Paul uses the same word for elements here that he used in Galatians 4.3, which we looked at three weeks ago, uh, which are the, the practical ways of the world or the cause and effect relationship with God that was wrong. It's the natural way people think, which is, okay, if I do something for God, then he's going to be happy with me. I have to be the cause, and he gives me an effect, which is wrong. That's legalism, and it doesn't work. God is looking for faith. He says, I will bless you if you believe, if you believe to me, in me and come to me. And, then, and so uh, that's uh, another link he's using to linking back to chapter 4, verse 3, that word elements. And so... Um, but this is moving backward and not forward. You know, mo- going from this knowing relationship where he knows you and you know him. You're spending time in the word and in prayer. In prayer, you're, you're communicating with him. The word, he's communicating to you. They went from that to their performance. It's moving backwards. And Paul's just like, what is going on? And so uh, here's a great quote. Uh, from Warren Wiersbe, one of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads a believer back into a second childhood of Christian experience. Just so sad. We're called to move on to maturity. You know, when you see a child uh, or when you see an adult sucking on a pacifier, it's about the most horrible thing I've ever seen. And I see it sometimes and I'm like, what are you... It's like revolting. Right. But yet a Christian who is trying to please God by their works in legalism is the same thing spiritually. It's sad. And the worst thing is. Is that it's like betraying a friend. It's like betraying a friend to know someone and be known by someone is it's talking about relationship or friendship with God. And so someone, you know, intimately. And so when you leave that relationship and go back to trying to earn your relationship or earn, your, earn that person's um, love, it's, it's like a betrayal. Imagine if me and my wife, imagine if um, you know, we know each other now and we're close and we're friends and we're in love. Imagine if I said, wait, honey, I woke up one morning and I said, honey, I can't speak with you for two months and I don't want to see you for two months. And all I'm going to do is try do a bunch of things to make you happy. And I'm going to be over here and, and I'm going to be on the other side of the world and I'm going to be doing all these things. But it's for you. Am I, is that going to help our relationship? 
It's not going to. I mean, she may be like, oh, what? Why are you going to do that? Let's say I said it was for 10 years. No, I'd come back at the end of that 10 years and I would not know her. Oh, but I've done so many things. Look, I spent the whole time building paper swans for you. I made 40,000 paper swans for you. And she would look at me and say, I don't even like origami. What have you been doing? I've missed you. You'd say that, right? You'd miss me? Maybe. Be kind of nice. No, just kidding. She would miss me. She would, I would miss her. And if I brought this whole truckload of origami paper swans and dumped them on her driveway, it would not produce love and affection. It wouldn't. Me spending time with her and being with her is the best thing for us. Making dinner together, like tonight. Anyway, John 10.14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. It's about knowing. Does John 17.3 say? I think I mention this verse every week. We talked about it in the men's Bible study this week. John 17.3. This is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All of eternal life is about this relationship. So, Paul says, do you really want to turn away from this relationship and go back to a legalistic way of thinking? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain. Paul is afraid of the deceitful draw of legalism that is going to lure them back into the bondage and slavery. A great example of this is is, uh, John Wesley. You guys ever heard of John Wesley? The famous uh, Bible teacher, pastor. Um, He was the son of a clergyman and a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in belief, faithful in morality, and full of good works. He did ministry in prisons, sweatshops, and slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to slum children. He observed both Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath. Two days. He sailed from England to American colonies as a missionary. He studied his Bible, prayed, fasted, and gave regularly. Yet all of this time, he was bound in the chains of his own religious efforts because he trusted in what he could do to make himself right before God instead of trusting in what Jesus had done. Later, he came to trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation and came to an inner assurance that he was now forgiven, saved, and a son of God. And looking back on all his religious activity before he was truly saved, he said, he said, I had not even then, I had then the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. So I just love how he came to that realization that God wanted to bring freedom into his life through the sonship that we talked about last week and the week before. So, verse 12. Brethren, or sorry, back in verse uh, 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. A great verse to bring up when your um, Seventh-day Adventist friends or your other 
religious organization friends come who say that you need to be keeping the Sabbath in order to be saved. Because they'll bring this argument to you guys, and it's pretty persuasive. They'll say, oh, oh, yes, we are freed from the law by Jesus. We're freed, except for the ones God gave before the Ten Commandments. We're freed from the Ten Commandments, but the ones God gave before that are still in effect. Laws like marriage, they'll throw marriage and keeping the Sabbath in there. And they, they, throw, they link those two together and they say, oh, those are, are pre-existing laws that predate the law. And, uh, and here, this is a great verse to bring them to, besides the other verses that say it doesn't matter to keep the Sabbath. But besides those verses, those verses here's another one for you. And he's worried that, them, uh, that they're getting this idea that they need to keep days and months and seasons and years. And um, he's worried that his whole relationship with them will have been in vain. Verse 12, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. So Paul says, look at my consistency. Look at my freedom. Look at my relationship with Jesus. You can have that. And it's all by grace, not by working harder. When he says, I became like you, he says, I know where you're at. I've been legalistic in my life. Can we remember the teachings we've taught about Paul and the things he experienced in his life and the, the way he had been legalistic, the way he had been a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees and kept every law? Paul knows what it's like to be legalistic and he says, trust me, I know more than you that it's a dead end. It's a great failure. It's a broken system of right living. And again, this is something that comes up when we're talking with our Catholic friends. And, you, and you're like, they come to you and they say, aren't we Christians? And you, you're, you start walking them through the book of Galatians. And you start sharing with them about the freedom that they have just in simply relationship with God. And they say, oh, but, but the system I'm in has all these other things that I need to be partaking in and be a part of and be doing to maintain this relationship with God. And that's where we have to explain to them and teach them how their system is a broken system. They are not the problem. The people are not broken. The system is broken. Jesus isn't the problem. Mary's not the problem. The system that they've developed is a problem because it goes against what the Bible says. And so, Paul here says, I became like you. I understand where you've been at. Um, or have been, is another translation is, I have been like you. Uh, and then he says, you have not injured me at all. Paul wants them to get this right, uh, but for their own sakes, not for his. He, he has no problem talking with them and, and coming back and teaching them. He says, you know, they shouldn't be upset that they're making him mad. So verse 13 now, he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I've told you or I tell you the truth? We don't know what this physical trial was. We know that Paul was beaten, stoned and left for dead and 
And I imagine getting stones thrown at you until you looked dead probably would have some physical things that ha- lasting effects for you. And it might have had something to do with this eyesight, because of course right here he points out the fact that they would have plucked out their own eyes if possible to give to him. So he's calling them back to this place to remember the relationship that they had. That he loved them and they loved him. And now he's saying, are we going to be enemies? Like, look how much you love me. And now are we going to be enemies just because I'm telling you the truth? That their doctrine got messed up? That these people are deceiving them? Trying to convince them that legalism is the way to go? So uh, a messenger of God's love and truth can have a thankless job. You know, his care and concern for them is true and genuine, and all he wants them to do is know Jesus. That's it. Know him. Just know him is all Paul's pointing at. It's all about knowledge and this experiential knowledge. So turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3 real quick. One page to the right. Well, three pages to the right. Philippians chapter 3. And look at this, because Paul is the perfect example of what he's saying here. He's saying, all I want for you guys is to know Jesus. Get away from all that legalistic stuff. Just know Jesus. And look at what his own life is. Chapter 3, verse 8. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So Paul's own life, he cared about nothing except knowing Jesus. And then look down in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And then look down in verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press forward to the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul's life was centered on one thing. And in that little section there of Philippians, he's, he's thrusting it out there and saying, I have one thing on my mind, and it's not how much I perform. I don't care about my performance. I care about knowing him. So verse 17, back in Galatians 4, verse 17, they... Those legalistic Judaizers, the people who were deceiving them, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous for a good thing, always, and not only when I am present with you. Many cults use this technique Uh, informally known as love bombing where they overwhelm a prospective member with attention, support, and affection but it isn't really a sincere love for the prospect it is uh, really just a technique to gain another member some Christians and even legalistic groups among Christians can use the same technique in one way or another where they just um, are really zealous for you. But look at what happens here. It says that the truth is that they actually wanted to exclude those Galatian 
Gentiles from the Jewish Christians and, uh, and, uh, and make them jealous for a super spiritual group of the legalistic Jewish Christians that were keeping the law of Moses in addition to Jesus. So it was like this game that the Judeas were playing where they were like, oh, that's great that you Gentiles have come to know Jesus. That's really great. But you're never going to be as good as us Jewish believers are unless you get circumcised and somehow change your lineage to be Jewish. That's really what was happening. But he says here, See, this zeal that they had, the Jews, the legalistic Jews, they, it was cultivated by legalism, and that kind of zeal is often um, more of a zeal for the group itself than for Jesus Christ. Though they name the name of Jesus in practice, the group itself is exalted as the main focus and usually exalted as the last refuge of true super-Christians. So if you find yourself in a group that makes their group super Christians or better than other Christians or because you're in this group you really know God be very careful that you're not in a group that's um, leading you the wrong way because real Christianity teaches that everyone has the exact same access to Jesus they're not people who are more sons than others and also zeal is not the problem Paul wants them to be zealous for good things. Which, what are the good things that Paul's been pointing us towards in this book? Jesus. Just a relationship with Jesus. Be zealous about that. The zealousness that Paul talks about um, is that the Judaizers were jealous for what the church had. And Paul still wants the church to be making them jealous. So that's why he says it's good to be zealous for a good thing. In other words, if you guys are zealous for Jesus and your relationship with God, that's what's going to make people hungry and thirsty and jealous for what you have. And that's what happened. The, the Judaizers came into Galatia and they're like, man, these guys think they know God. They don't even keep the Ten Commandments. They don't even know God like we know God. We've been raised our whole life. We got circumcised. We've been having these blue tassels on our shirts. We've been doing all this stuff that shows that we know God at a deeper level. And these Gentiles are just praising Jesus and like being healed and set free and all this stuff. And it made them jealous. And so that's why they're like, hey guys, it's not okay that you guys just worship Jesus and have this, all this freedom. You have to be keeping the law and get circumcised and all this stuff. And it's so sad again. So, and it's like that a lot in, uh, in our church. What we want to develop here at the Denver campus, at Calvary Wara, every place that we have is an environment where your relationship with God is something to be envied. Where when you guys praise God and you guys are lifting your hands and your hearts to the Lord, other people walk in and they're like, whoa, these people love Jesus. I don't know about anything else that they do or talk about, but these people love Jesus. And I can tell. I can totally tell. It's their whole thing. All they care about is Jesus. All they want to do is talk about Jesus. That's what we want to develop here. And we're still in the, the formation stage of our you know, group here. And as we're forming that, I want. that's why we picked the book of Galatians. 
We want it to be all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And I know you guys are on board with me with that, and it makes me so happy, because it's awesome. All about Jesus. Titus 2.14 says, uh, Jesus who gave himself that, we might, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. See, zealousness comes naturally after the relationship. And who brings the zealousness in the relationship? God brings it into your life. See, what's worse than someone who is faking being excited about something? terrible. I hate it. I hate it when I feel like I have to fake being excited about something when I'm not really excited about it. So what, what do we want to do? We want to be real. And if zealousness hasn't come into your life, okay, that's fine. It will come in its own time. That's why like, like this uh, inductive Bible study thing that's coming up uh, on the 16th and, or 16th and 17th over at Calvary Aurora. That's why I'm encouraging people to do that because it's so wonderful. And you're like, but I'm not just not that passionate about studying the Word or about my relationship with God. It's like, okay. I'm not going to send you to a class how to be more passionate, how to be excited for Jesus. We don't have that class at Calvary Aurora. But what we do have is a class on how to study your Bible so you can know God and God can know you. That class is there. And through that relationship that you'll have, through learning how to study the Word, the zealousness will come after. You will get excited about studying the Word of God if you go to that class. Because they'll take you through the... It's just going to be awesome. So go to that class if you can. Alright. So, Galatians 4, 19 is the verse we left off at. we got two verses left. My little children, whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul's goal was to see Jesus develop in their life. That Jesus' mode of thinking would become theirs. That they would think as Christ think. That they would thought. That they would feel as Christ felt. That they would speak as Christ spoke. That they would act as Christ act. And they would suffer as Christ suffered. That's what a Christian is. It's just an animated image of Jesus on this earth. That's what it's supposed to be. And so Paul, he's passionate about that. In fact, there's nothing that Paul would not willingly do and suffer to see this happen. Women, you give birth. You go through child pain. And why? Because you love that baby, right? You love it. And Paul here, he uses the same language to describe his relationship with the Galatians. And he says, I would go through childbirth for you. Now, you ladies are like, you have no idea what we went. But Paul says it. He says, I'm in labor. I'm in that kind of pain when it comes to how much I desire to see you become Christ-like. And all he could do right now was write this letter. But he did it. He would have loved to be able to plead with them in person and, uh, you know, to follow Jesus and Jesus alone, but he couldn't. So here's the question. What can you do? You guys have the same Holy Spirit that Paul did. I'm sure there's people in your life who you love and who you could plead with personally 
and say, follow Jesus, Jesus alone. And I encourage you guys to do that. But maybe there's people that you could just write a letter to. I put up on Facebook this week, I said, how long has it been since you wrote a letter and got a letter in response from someone? And there was like responses on there like 1965, 1942. I think someone even made a comment about parchments and I don't know. But who can we talk to? Who can we plead with? You know, each one of us, again, are connected with thousands of people. So, but here he says he was hoping and praying and he was in pain that Christ would be formed into that. Just like Romans 8.29 says, For he whom we foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. On a wall near the main entrance of the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, is a portrait with the following inscription. James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. But the portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. No literal portrait of Jesus exists either. But the likeness of the son who makes us free can be seen in the lives of his true followers. We don't have a picture of Jesus. But yet I think I know what he was like. Because as as men of God and women of God have followed him, they become like him. You know, I see see a brother like Avant who's followed the Lord for hundreds of years. And that's what happens when you're with the Lord that long. You become like him. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? If you don't, go pray with Avant after service. And you'll find out. And I hope I'm like that when I grow up. I hope we all have Jesus formed in us. And it will happen as you spend time with him. It will. So thank you guys for your patience and your attention tonight. We're going to end with a prayer and a song. In fact, Ava, would you come up here and pray us, pray for us to close our message tonight? All right, come on up. I love that we're we're small and we can do things like this, and I can just call you out. You never know when you're going to be one closing service. Okay. I got called out. Got called out. Let's pray. Pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I, uh, well, sometimes I hear things that I don't deserve, Heavenly Father. So, Lord, if I, if I feel I don't deserve it, I, I ask that you would uh, continue to fill us, not only myself, but all of us, Heavenly Father, with the fullness of the Lord. Lord, that our, our cup would just overflow overflow Heavenly Father Lord I pray for every individual that attended our, our service tonight Lord I, I pray for those uh, over at the Royal Campus and, and throughout our city and uh, we thank you for the word of God uh, Lord in this sanctuary alone we pray for uh, someone Heavenly Father whose body aches or our hearts could be filled with pain 
Lord, we need encouragement. And Lord, whatever the situation may be, Lord, you already know. Because you know each and every one of our hearts, Lord. And, and so tonight, Lord, we give our hearts to you. And we ask that you would wash us and cleanse us of our sins and our shortcomings, Heavenly Father. We pray as we leave this facilities that we, uh, we would go uh, in the hands of the Lord and that you would keep us from seen and unseen dangers, Lord. And we remember those, Heavenly Father, who are in hospitals and hospices and nursing homes tonight, Lord. We also remember those that are mourning the loss of a loved one, Heavenly Father. Lord, help us to have the discernment uh, to encourage those, Heavenly Father, who are in pain. So, Lord, we, we just we continue to turn this night over to you, Lord, and ask that you would have your way. And we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.